This morning we come to, to three more names of God. And if, if you had to pick a, an element in, in nature that best pictures God to you, what would it be? Or that reminds you of God? Mountains. That's what mine is. So let's just go with that, okay? So I have a couple pictures. For me, when I go to the mountains and, and I see the mountains, I, I think, man, this is just a smidgen of how great God is. You ever, you ever feel that way? I have a couple pictures for you this morning. Anyone know what mountain this is? Mount Whitney. Anyone climb Whitney here? A few of you have climbed Whitney. It's just an incredible thing. When you, when you see Whitney, when you're at the, the, the tallest mountain in the continental United States, what does that stir in you? Those, that, Patrick? Awe, right? You're like, wow, this is incredible. And it's just a taste of, of who God is. This is one of our members, Tom, who climbed Whitney. Just, that's this summer, right? That's just a few weeks ago. That's from the top of Whitney, looking down over the Owens Valley behind him. And he did not fall off. He's still with us this morning, which is good. Now, one of the reasons you climb Whitney is to get to the shed at the top. Uh, okay, maybe that's not the reason, but that's at the top right there. And the other side of the shed might be the reason people climb Whitney. <laughs> no, it's not really there. Sorry for, for the Starbucks people. I had to throw that in. But it's just, you, you see the mountains behind. It's just the, this grand view. One other mountain that we often associate, which is just, uh, you know, about 30 miles away from, 40 miles away from Whitney as the crow flies, um, is Half Dome, right? Half Dome's an amazing rock. Some of you have climbed Half Dome, and when you, when you enter the Yosemite Valley, you see Half Dome, you see El Cap, and it's just this amazing view that reminds us of how great God is, how amazing God is. Interesting thing about Half Dome those of you that think it's great and awesome, you're the ha- glass half full people. Do you realize it's only half a rock? <laughs> that means it's a rock that failed. Half of it fell off. And we still think it's this great, amazing thing. What a tiny taste of how great and amazing God is. Because God never fails. He never falls apart. He created all of this with a word. And today we come to the names of God, and, and the first name of God is the one over here on the piano, Ancient of Days. And, and when I think Ancient of Days, I start to think mountains. And I'm not completely sure why, but just the greatness of God, the enduring aspect of God. Mountains endure, even though they do fall apart sometimes by the hand of God. Mountains endure, and so it reminds us of the greatness of God. So we want to dig in to the names today. At first glance, the names today, Ancient of Days, Husband and Lion, may not have any connection. And they may seem like, well, that's an odd collection. But what our strategy has been is to work our way through the Bible of when a name is first introduced. And so you get some natural correlations there. In this case, all of these names are introduced by prophets in prophecy to Israel. And so you, we will we'll get to see prophecy of judgment, of God's punishment of sin. We'll get to see prophecy of God's restoration and that He always has open arms and He is faithful even if we are not. And we'll see prophecy of the end times. So all of these have to do with prophecy this morning, but help us understand how great and majestic and powerful our God is. 
So let's dig in with Ancient of Days. We'll start there. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And for those of you that have studied Daniel, you know the first six chapters are sort of the Sunday school stories that we've heard of and taking Israel into captivity. And uh, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar turning into a, a cow for seven years. And you have all these stories that we've heard. But the second half of the book, the next six chapters, all have to do with prophecy of what God is going to do for all of time and how great God is and how sovereign God is. So when we come to Daniel 7, we come to prophecy. We come to God revealing to Daniel, this is how I'm going to work for all eternity. And this is where we first see the phrase ancient of days used as the name of God. Daniel chapter 7, we'll start with verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Do you get the scene? It's this incredible scene where we have a throne placed among other thrones and the Ancient of Days comes and he is presiding over the court of courts. He is ruling. And and some of the descriptions we get there, his clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head like pure wool, probably representing purity, his righteousness, his holiness. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued out and came from before him. Fire was often used of judgment. And this is a, a God who is, this is God who is going to sit in judgment of all sin and of all rebellion against himself. But then picture how vast the scene is. A thousand thousands were serving him. These are just the people around the throne that are his aides and possibly angels here, possibly the saints that have gone before serving God. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And so you see this vast array, this vast crowd waiting to hear the judgment of the Ancient of Days. This is the context that this name is first used in. And in this context, if you look in your notes under Ancient of Days and understanding this name, the first thing that we should think of is enduring eminence. Enduring intimates. He is from, from everlasting to everlasting, but not just existing as some, oh, little being or whatever. He is the imminence, the great one, the ancient of days. And so while that term could be used just of an elderly man, here it is being used of someone who has been and existed for all time and is an imminence or a, a judge, a king over all of that. What an incredible picture of God Almighty. He eternally exists on His throne. A couple of psalms that remind us of that. Psalm 9, verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. How long is He enthroned? Forever. From all time to all time. The Ancient of Days is God. 
Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, thinking of our mountains, before they were even brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so when we study the Ancient of Days, we should have this sense of awe as we enter the courtroom that is above all courtrooms. The throne room above all throne rooms. That is our God. Part of Ancient of Days and realizing that God has existed from everlasting to everlasting is, is letter B there, His changelessness. His changelessness. In James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He never changes. Now, I've gone to Whitney several times. It's the same. Those rocks are there. There's certain landmarks. There's certain ways that you know the path by certain landmarks, right? Because it's the same. Half dome, even though I joke about half of it falling off, ever since I've been going, it looks the same. We, we, don't go there. <laughs> I am not the ancient of days. <laughs> because when we think of mountains, we think of something that doesn't change. We think of permanence, of stability. God, God spoke those into existence. He is the only one that truly never changes. Those are but an imperfect picture of a perfect, enduring God who never changes. Amen? I hope that stirs something in us as we behold our God, as we worship Him. Because even as we study God's Word, we are worshiping the changeless God. But then in this case, we also have to look at the context it's, it's in. And this is used in a context of prophecy and of judgment. So let's read on. We've read verses 9 and 10. Let's read verse 11 on. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Now, to give a little background before the, in Daniel 7, he talks about four creatures or four beasts that come up. And, and he's going to explain what these beasts are. But for us... We know that, as he explains, these are kingdoms, and these are great kingdoms that will come. The fourth kingdom has a horn that comes up that represents the beast or the Antichrist. And so in verse 12 or 11, I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Now, I, I, I say that a little quick at the end because this is one verse that talks about the destruction of the Antichrist. And, and there's such irony in this. The first is that this little horn on this fourth beast was speaking great words. It couldn't keep its mouth shut. In rebellion against God, I'm so great, I'm so great. You're a little horn. You're, you're not the Ancient of Days. And in this context, the Ancient of Days comes and the beast was killed and its body destroyed and was given to be burned with fire. That's how great it was. That's it. No big climactic battle scene. Just God wins. Verse 12 talks about the rest of the, the kingdoms. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So probably most commentators think that that means the, the kingdoms were taken over, but some of the culture was then assimilated into the next kingdom. And we know that from history. But the point here is the, the Ancient of Days is sitting above all kingdoms. 
And in fact, as we're going to keep reading, he brings about a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that everyone who believes in him is part of. And so the Ancient of Days is the king. So we read on, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancients of Days and was presented before him. And we get onto the scene, Jesus coming to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancients of Days commissioning Jesus, the Son of Man, to come and bring salvation to mankind who will believe in Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And you can just picture the throne room, the courtroom, the Ancient of Days sitting above all else and Him sending His Son, Jesus, with all of His power, with all of His authority because He is the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus came to earth, humbled Himself and became a man, took our sin upon Himself when He had no sin and was killed and executed on that cross in our place where we should have been. And that is how He created an everlasting kingdom. That all who believe, that all who accept that salvation will be born again, adopted as sons like we talked about last week, sons and daughters, and be part of that everlasting kingdom. This gives me chills. The Ancient of Days sitting and orchestrating history for His glory. And so we see here this description of of the judge judging all of the world empires. They are nothing compared to him. The first act that we read of his judging is that he, he put the Antichrist down. He's condemned and slain. His second act is that he establishes the dominion of the Son of Man. And these are how they are mentioned, not necessarily chronological. But then in the final act, as we read on, he puts down the last great rebellion and makes a judgment in favor of the saints. So we read on at 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and then the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And so we see seemingly the kingdom of Satan winning. Seemingly the saints being persecuted and losing. But then 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. I love that. Satan wins until. 
until the Ancient of Days says, okay, now I'm going to execute this part of my plan. There's no arguing. There's no more battling. God wins because he's the Ancient of Days. And so a couple of other things in your notes. This name represents God's divine judgment on sin. Righteous divine judgment. Sin must be judged. It must be dealt with and taken care of. But then as we follow the story through the context, Ancient of Days isn't just that He's eternal. It isn't just that He's above all times. But it's a name that assures us of the final victory of God over evil. Whatever evil and injustice may disturb us, whatever may bother us in our day, whatever we see on the news from the beginning, from ancient times to today for all of history, God can take care of it. And He is committing to establishing His righteous kingdom that will be the only kingdom that lasts. That gives us hope of a future. You'll see another name as you read through there, especially if you read on through Daniel 7, that is mixed in with Ancient of Days, God Most High. El Elyon, which we've studied. And so God Most High is tied there with Ancient of Days that He is the righteous judge that rules over all. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible to know how the story ends? I've talked about that before. I've I've used baseball as an example because I love baseball. If you you know the final score and you know your team wins in the end and they're down by 10, which the Dodgers were this week but didn't pull it out, um, (laughs) you you don't worry, right? You're there to see how how it all happens. That's where we're, we're at. Even as we open the newspaper, even as we see some of the things about gay marriage, and even as we see some of the things about gender identity and and abortion, and we're like, I don't know how our culture can even be sane in this environment. God wins, guys. This is just an act before we see how God works. That is the God we serve. That's the God we worship this morning. That's why we come and we sing our hearts out. We fall on our knees because He is worthy of praise. He is the Ancient of Days. A couple of implications and applications there. The first, what we just said, our future is secure. There's peace for our days ahead. I almost put our retirement is secure because there's all kinds of things with the stock market right now. But this is our ultimate retirement. The second thing there is we need to stand strong in a morally failing world because we're living for something greater than this world. We're living for the Ancient of Days. We are already part of His kingdom that that He has set up in our hearts now and He will set up physically in the future. Don't be afraid to take a stand for our Lord and Savior for truth, for what is right. This lost world needs a light. They need the gospel. They need to hear about the son that was sent out by the Ancient of Days and commissioned. So the first prophecy here is about the end of time, of all of time, the Ancient of Days. The second name we come to is Husband. And that that God declares that He is husband to the people of Israel in the New Testament, that Jesus is the groom to the bridegroom, His church, and we are His bride. And, And I know going into this name that half the people here are men. And no man wants to be called a bride. Right? Because we we 
we understand we're men and we're supposed to be the husband. But we come to this realizing that God and His church, God and His people is a representation of the marriage relationship. It's actually the marriage relationship symbolizes that and helps us understand that. And so when we think of God as a husband to His people collective, to the church collective, we see an image of what we should model after, what we should copy. We see a precious relationship. And to really understand this word, turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. Just a little bit to the right in your Bible. Hosea chapter 2. It's the very next book. And Hosea is a fascinating story. Another minor prophet. We're just going to hit a couple minor prophets today. I know high school, you guys are starting that in Sunday school soon, right? Um, so this, this won't spoil anything. But Hosea is a fascinating story because God called Hosea to prophesy to the children of Israel who have, have walked away from God. And he's ministering to the people in, in, from between 750 to 715 B.C. And right in the middle of that is when the people were deported to Babylon. And so he's right in this time where the people have rebelled against God. God is bringing judgment on them. And God is asking them to repent. See, the thing about God, sometimes we view Him as this, this big meaning in the sky that, that just wants to punish us. All of what God does is designed to bring us back to Him and to relationship with Him. His desire is to be close to us and to have us stop sinning and walking away from that relationship. And so in Hosea, God asks Hosea to do some crazy things, things I don't think I could ever do. Starts by asking him to marry a prostitute to signify or to show how God was married to Israel who kept walking away from God and being unfaithful. And then his wife walks away and goes back into prostitution and she's with other men and, and he is asked to support her in that and to give her food and to not abandon her. And then eventually to go, she, she, she's out of money and she's becoming a slave. He goes and pays for her life and redeems her to himself and brings her back as his wife. Crazy stuff, but what a picture of how much God loves us, right? When we keep walking away from him and God sent his son to die on the cross while we were yet sinners, Romans 5 says. He died for us. And so that's the context of of Hosea here is that story. And we go to Hosea chapter 2. We'll start at verse 16. And and, understand all of this happening with his wife and and illustrating God's relationship with Israel, his covenant love for Israel. In Hosea chapter 2, we read in, in, in verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And we look at that and we're like, okay. Baal, I don't want to call God Baal. But we have to understand some things about the words there. My husband there, God uses a different word for husband. There, there's two words that could be used, ish or Baal. Like, wait a minute, Baal is a Canaanite god, right? It also was used as Lord or husband. And it represented more of a master-slave, master-servant relationship. And unfortunately, that's what wives usually called their husbands. My Baal, my Lord. And signifying submission, but it lacked some of the relationship. And so God here comes and says, You will no longer call me my Baal, you'll call me my Ish, my husband. Because that word had more of a context of relationship had more of a context of love 
and covenant love. And so this is a a fantastic verse where God says, I'm not just a distant God that wants nothing to do with you. I want to love you and I want you to love me. He also is wiping away the stain of Baal, of using that word which was the Canaanite God of the time. And so he's like, don't even go near idolatry. Don't even go near straying and serving another God. Let's just take that name out of our vocabulary. Call me Ish, your husband. And it's the, the imagery is so rich here. 17 goes on, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be, remember, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And he's talking about fleeing idolatry and they will be faithful to me someday. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. And now he's moved to prophesying about the future that someday there will be peace. In verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. What a beautiful statement at the verses 19 and 20 of what this new relationship looks like. This change in relationship. In the future when idolatry is removed, when they will be worshiping God alone, and he gives five things there that that he will do, six things rather, that he will do his part. He will betroth them in righteousness, in justice. And so sin will be taken away. They will walk rightly and justice will be there. But then steadfast love, and the word there is hased or a covenant love that says, I will love you no matter what you do because I am the ancient of days. And I love you. And so we see that covenant love, that mercy which is empathy coming alongside and then faithfulness. And the context here is of an unfaithful wife. And God said, but I will draw you to myself and I will be faithful to you. And then that last phrase, I love this wording. You shall know your God. You will know Yahweh. And it's not just know about, but you'll be in relationship with and, and when we think of the future, when we think of eternity with Christ, where there is no sin, where we are in perfect communion with God, we'll know Him. We'll be in that kind of relationship. And so there's several things that we get out of the, these verses. The first there is a relationship with God. There's intimacy in that relationship. Intimacy in that relationship. It's not just a religion. If you're here this morning just looking for 10 things you have to do to be a Christian so you might get to go to heaven, that's not what we're about. We're about walking with a a Savior who died for us, who loved us, being one with Him, being in relationship with Him. That's what we're about. Because He is husband. Ish, not just Baal. Second thing there is God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. As husband, God presents himself as an utterly faithful person. He remains committed to Israel, his wife, despite her unfaithfulness. The verses Joshua read this morning, Jeremiah 31, 31, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. So he's recalling their unfaithfulness. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And here's a statement of relationship again. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Village, when we believe in Jesus Christ, our future is that He will be our God and we will be His people. Our present is that He will be our God and we will be His people. We are in a relationship with God Almighty. He is faithful. Will we be? Third point there, see the husband name shows the ideal relationship between God and His people. A loving, forgiving, faithful, providing, protecting husband. God wants us to be, he, he wants to be to us what a husband is to a new wife. He wants to be shelter and care and leadership and, and love and cherish us. And so the marriage imagery is just a beautiful image of that relationship. It represents a binding, permanent, faithful, sacred relationship. Isaiah 54.5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Moving forward into the New Testament, we have several verses that talk about Jesus being the bridegroom. His church being the bride. In John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist is talking about his diminished role. Why are people going to worship Jesus instead of you? And he's like, no, that's okay. That's the goal. And he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this, is, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. Andrew and Heather are getting married today. And imagine if the best man the whole time during the wedding was like, look at me, look at me. No, it's about the the bridegroom and the bride. And John the Baptist got that. But he's using imagery of that relationship between Jesus and his church. He is the husband. We collectively are the bride. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband. So Paul is saying, I introduced you to your husband, basically, to Jesus. I betrothed you to your husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And we see again in Revelation 19, this culminates. And we're talking prophecy here. We're talking the span of time. And this is the picture we get at the end of time. Let us rejoice in Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. 
And so one of God's names is husband, especially as it refers to his relationship with his people. A couple of implications and applications. Lots we could get out of this, but just a few. The name husband reminds us that our walk with God is a relationship. And we already mentioned that. It's not just a set of do's and don'ts. It's to be a relationship. Second implication there, marriage is to be monogamous. Is that the obvious statement of the day? We should stay faithful to our spouse, right? Now picture that. If, if the relationship between Jesus and his church is described as a marriage and understanding what was asked of Hosea, the question has to come, are we faithful to God? Are we monogamous or are we chasing after other, other people? And this gets to the heart, I think, of the prophecy in Hosea to stay away from idolatry. There should be no others that we love more than God. No one else. Nothing else. God is to have first place in our hearts. My first calling is not to love my wife. My first calling is not to love my kids. My first calling is to love my God. And you know what? When I do that, and when I make that first, those others fall in line in beautiful ways. Because without understanding what it means to love and be loved by the Ancient of Days, I struggle to love other people. It's by His power and His grace and His love that we're able to do that. Another thought about that implication. Like a wife, we take on His name. We take on God's name. Celeste, what's your last name? It's not what it was six months ago. Now that you're married, now that you have a husband, you took on his name. That's part of you. You represent him. Village, when we come to Christ, repent and accept him as our Savior, we take on his name. We're called Christians, followers of Christ. That means we represent his name for better or for worse, unfortunately. We have taken on his name. And there's joy and there's an inheritance with that, but it's sobering because what I do reflects on the name of Christ. Think about that. When we think of God as husband, it's not just all, oh, look what he's doing for me. It's what are my responsibilities as his bride. Finally, last implication, application I wanted to mention. Men, we need to be looking at Christ in the church for how to husband. For how to husband. And and modeling that. In Ephesians 5, and I encourage you to go back and read that, it talks about tying Christ in the church with a husband and wife relationship. And it says that Christ was willing to lay down His life for His church. He gave all for His church. To cleanse her, to sanctify her. He died to self. Men, part of our role as husbands is to die to self. To die to self for our wives, for our family, to show them who Christ is, to show them God's love, to lead them in our walks with God. Look to Christ and the church for how to husband. That'll be better than any how-to book you read. Guaranteed. Because no one has ever loved like Christ. No one has ever sacrificed like Christ. No one has ever led like Christ. 
as a servant leader. Men, follow Christ. And then use that to lead your homes. The last name, if we just turn over a couple more chapters or a couple more books to Amos. Amos 3.8. The last name is Lion. Quite frankly, I thought this one would be a lot more common in Scripture. There, there's not a lot of verses that, God call, that call God a lion. Amos 3.8 is one of them. We have the, the New Testament where Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. But it's, a, it's an image that we're familiar with. Why? What does a lion represent? <laughs> Strength. I know a lot of other things were said, but it was all blending together. A lion represents strength, right? It represents might. It symbolizes greatness, power. A lion is regarded as the fiercest and the dangerous of most animals. They were used figuratively to portray warriors and armies. They, they represent courage and boldness. They're the king of the beasts. And so Amos here comes and refers to God as lion. And again, this is prophecy to Israel who struggled with following God. So look at Amos 3, verse 8. And interestingly enough, this is during a time right before the, the exile when things were prosperous, when things looked good, and idols were everywhere. And the worship of God, Yahweh, was not there. And sometimes that happens. And so Amos is prophesying right before all this is about to happen, happened to try to turn them back to God. In Amos 3, verse 8, we read, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, or Yahweh has spoken, but who can but prophesy? And there's some parallelisms there that we know that the prophet is saying the Lord God is the same as the lion. And here we see his roar, and it's a roar of authority and coming judgment. And so lest we think of God the lion in terms of our kitty cats in our house, this is a roar of fierce and coming judgment for those that do not follow God. Judgment coming with the remnant saved. You can read on through that chapter. And so God the lion, Yahweh the lion, roars out judgment on injustice and idolatry even among God's own people, sin cannot be tolerated. Earlier in Amos 1, chapter 1, verse 2, we read, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And we see that imagery of a lion being used there, but in this verse he's called the lion. Fast forward all the way to Revelation 5, 5. We're going from their current time to the end. And in Revelation 5, 5, the prophecy is given of Jesus. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Do you get the imagery with lion? Lion Has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. The Davidic Messiah was a lion. So I challenge you, don't forget that God is judge. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the Lion. 
while he's still our husband. A couple of applications there. Don't lose your awe of God's strength and authority. Don't lose your awe of God's strength and authority. Remember that God will judge our sin, even our secret sins. And that should send a little bit of a chill. God will judge our sin, even our secret sin. I love C.S. Lewis. I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids, using all kinds of fun voices and killing my throat, so not usually on a Saturday night. But there's a section in there that is a, a, a really popular section to read as Susan and Lucy are trying to figure out who Aslan is. And Aslan is the lion that represents Jesus. We read, Aslan is a, a lion, the lion, the great lion. And this is the, they're talking to the beavers. And if you haven't read the story, just go with it. The animals talk. And Mrs. Beaver says that. And, oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he qu- quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Thank you, Will, dearie, or that you will, dearie, and and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. A little later in the book, when talking about God as as a lion, Lewis writes, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. The lion will make things right because he is the ancient of days and he is our husband. I'd like to end... uh, Can we go back and sing Behold Our God again? I don't know who all of worship team is in here, but if any of worship team's in here, I'd like to end with just worshiping the Ancient of Days today and singing Behold Our God and thinking through these names that are all up here. Ancient of Days, that eternal eminence, that He is the judge and picture the throne room scene. Husband, rather than Baal, that He removes idolatry and wants to be in relationship with us. And then Lion, that His judgment will roar out, but He will make things right and He will make things just. Lord God, Ancient of Days, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the One seated on the throne, God Most High, we come and bow before You. We worship You because You are God You are executing your plan. You are sovereign. And Lord, forgive us when we question your sovereignty. Forgive us when we lose sight of your greatness, when we think we are all great. Lord, we worship you. And this morning, may it be a reminder that we're to worship you with every part of our lives. Thank you for coming and redeeming us so we could be your bride and not just cast off, not just slaves but that you would be our husband. Thank you for that relationship, God, for that care, for that covenant love when we don't deserve it. Oh, Lord, we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.